This morning I will be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So if I were to ask you, uh, what is your favorite Christmas carol? What would it be if you were to come up here and share? Is it Joy to the World? Is it Hark the Herald Angels? sing. Now, if you're, if you're struggling right now and you're trying to come up with maybe Grandma got run over by a reindeer, that would not be technically a Christmas carol. Uh, you know, Christmas carols are, are fun to sing. We love them. Uh, most of us think they came around in the 17th or 18th centuries. In fact, the origin of Christmas carols used by the Christian church goes as far back as the 13th century uh, they were singing Christmas carols. You know, it, it's interesting. We, we love to give voice in song uh, to what God has done in bringing forth a Savior. That's why we're going through this series in Advent. These four weeks before Christmas, we're trying to understand better why God would bring forth his Son to save. If, if it's all true, it's the most incredible news possible. And so we want to understand, well, we think these Christmas carols started in the 13th or 17th century, but we see actually they start right in the Gospel of Luke. Th these songs, Mary last week, the Magnificat, in other words, she's exalting God for bringing forth the Son. Uh, today, we're looking at Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. That means the blessing. He's blessing God for bringing forth a son for us. That's what we want to look at. Try to understand what God is doing in bringing forth a son. What's the point of Christmas, really? Well, we'll look at Zechariah. Now, many of you are maybe thinking, well, isn't Zechariah in the Old Testament? Well, Zechariah is in the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet. But this is a different Zechariah. This Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. Now, if you remember, an angel appears to Mary. She's going to have the baby Jesus. Well, her cousin Elizabeth is going to have a, a son, John the Baptist. So Elizabeth's husband is Zechariah. 
And, and so a little backstory on Zechariah, though, and what produced this song of worship. Remember now, Zechariah, if you go back earlier in chapter one, uh, Zechariah was approached by an angel as well. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and told him that they, he and Elizabeth, would have a son. And this son would be named John, and this son would be the forerunner. He'd be the one who goes before the coming of the Messiah. This is really important, that John would be the one, he would be the town crier that goes before to announce the Messiah, the one we've waited for, is coming. So that was his role. But, but here's the thing. When the angel Gabriel told, remember now, the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would conceive a son. And her words to the angel were, let it be done according to your word. She submitted herself to God. When the angel told Gabriel, or sorry, when Gabriel told Zechariah that they would have a son, he said, how can this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He disbelieved. So if you, if you do appear before an angel, you don't want to go in that direction. It was a wrong answer. And the angel brings discipline in this way. The angel says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words. Zechariah, the priest, didn't believe the words of the angel. And so he was made unable to speak. Some scholars think, because if you read, if you continue reading through chapter 1, uh, he may have been made deaf and mute as discipline. Well, the angel said, until John is born. So once John is born, the spirit loosens his tongue and he gives grace and praise to God, which is our song. So our song is coming from a man who is made unable to speak and possibly hear for the past 40 weeks. And now he is exclaiming the greatness of God. So let's look at this song to try to better understand what's the point of Christmas. And the first thing we see is he's going to praise God for the salvation promised. God promised to bring a Messiah, and he completes it. So he praises God for salvation promised. Number two, he praises God for salvation purposed. There's a purpose to our salvation. Uh, we're not brought into the presence of God to kind of be cherubs floating around heaven forever. There, there's a practical purpose for why he saves. And thirdly, he, uh, he praises God for the salvation proclaimed. There's a message that the nations need to hear regarding the coming of Jesus at Christmas. So if, if you look with me back at verses uh, 68 to 73, we see that Salvation that God brought was promised long ago. Look at what he says. Zechariah was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. What's he saying here? Well, think about it with me. He's simply saying, I'm praising God for bringing forth, that you've, you've come and you've visited with us. Now, that word visit's interesting. It's used at the end of the passage as well. God visiting his people. He's not sending another prophet. God himself, he said, God's coming to visit us. 
mean, can you imagine? God is coming to, he's coming to dwell with us. He's coming to live with us. He's coming to almost tabernacle with us. So, so here he's saying, I praise God that God's now coming to visit us. Now, this is important to understand because if you were a first century Jew hearing Zechariah, you would recognize that there had been no prophetic voice. No prophets had spoken. God had not spoken for 400 years up to the prophet Malachi. And not only that, but the promise that was made to Israel that a king, a son of David would always be on his throne, there was no king on the throne. There's 400 years, no king. God said, hey, <clears throat> David, you're gonna, have a, you're gonna have a son and he's gonna be a king. There is no king. So people were beginning to wonder, can you trust God? I mean, can you trust his word? Can you trust everything he says? Now, let me remind you of the promise back in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, then Nathan was a prophet and he said to David, this is a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, Nathan says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish his throne of his kingdom forever. So what, <clears throat> what's happening here is Nathan the prophet says to David, you're going to die, but you'll have a son and that son will come and he will establish an eternal kingdom. There will be no end to his kingdom. It will, f it will be a forever kingdom. It will be a divine kingdom. So that was the promise of David. So they're waiting for the son to come. Who doesn't want that kind of kingdom with peace and justice? Well, then Isaiah, you notice in Zechariah's prayer, he says, spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets of old. Isaiah is 200 years later, and he kind of explains more of this promise and this is a verse that we all know from Isaiah 9. He says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he'll be a king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Is that not what we want? A perfect government of peace and justice, he says, uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it from this time forth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it's simply what he's saying here is Zechariah is saying, thank you, God, that you have brought forth the son that you promised to David that Isaiah prophesied. He's now come and he's called the horn of salvation. Now, why does he call him a horn of salvation? Don't think musical horn. Think horn of an ox or horn of a bull. Think of symbol of strength and power. This Messiah that comes, the son of David that comes, will have power to redeem. That's what it says, to redeem. What's redeem mean? We don't use that term anymore. It means to buy back. It means to purchase back. It's really a word that's, that's meant to make us think of really the exodus. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, the greatest act of God's salvation was when he delivered the people from Egypt. They were enslaved, and God comes in, and he saves the people for himself. They were redeemed, he said. And so here, Zechariah is saying that this horn of salvation is going to come and redeem us, save us. Look at the terms. They're almost nationalistic terms, delivering us, save us, redeem us. That's what he's going to do. 
Now, did Zechariah know exactly all that this, his son was going to preach and all that Jesus would do? I don't think he did probably know it all. But we do know that his son, that is John the Baptist, knew. Think about this for a minute. When Jesus does appear and he begins his ministry, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's come to redeem people. In other words, John understood that idea, Lamb of God. Remember in the Exodus, the Lamb was slain, the blood was put on the doorposts, and that's how they were redeemed? This will be the blood of the Lamb that will redeem us. So all Zachariah is saying here is, God, thank you. You promised a son, a horn of salvation, who would save us, who would deliver us, who would redeem us, and he's come, and I thank you for it. That's all he's saying here. But let me ask you, do you trust in the promises of God. I mean, think about how Zechariah wavered in those promises. Do you trust that God is faithful to his promises? Uh, you know, the whole Old Testament is really one big promise made. The New Testament is kind of a promise kept. Do you trust that God is faithful? When he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. When he says, I'll hold you fast. When he says, I'll stand at your side. When he says, I, I will, I'll never forget you. Do you trust in those things? You know, we're in a period of difficulty in both in our, in our national landscape and the polarization of politics and cultural positions. Perhaps you're in the midst of personal conflict right now. Perhaps you're in the midst of health conflict. And God's saying, I have the power to save. Do you, do you trust him for that? The call here, the story reminds us that we can because he's sovereign. He's the one that brought forth the son. You know, God raises up kings and he sets kings down. He moves through generations. Think about it for a minute. Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In God's time, he brought forth Christ. So God is working through humanity to achieve the ends that he has. And this is the point of, of us trusting because he's able to bring all things to pass. Now, think about Zechariah for a minute. He praises God and all he does is have a little baby. Baby's only eight days old. He's probably in his 80s. He'll never see the child enter his prophetic role. And yet he's praising God for the salvation that his own son will be proclaiming. And he doesn't see it. He can praise God in the midst of a promise that he hasn't fully realized. Think about the promises that God gives to us that I just mentioned. You may not be fully realizing those promises. You may be still waiting for them to come. Maybe it's a marital conflict and you're just asking for grace and mercy. And yet there's no relief on the horizon. I'm calling you to continue to trust. I'm calling you to faith. I'm calling you to trust that God is sufficient to honor his word. We can believe in his word. Think about the story with me. In Luke chapter 7, there is a centurion. This is in Jesus' ministry now. There is a centurion, and he had a sick servant that he really loved. And so he sent his other servants to fetch Jesus and to get him to come so that he might heal the servant. And so when Jesus was a little bit out from the house, he sends other servants and he says, hey, I don't want him to have to come into my house because it would humble me. You can just say the word and she'll be healed. And to this man, Jesus says, I have not seen 
such faith in all of Israel because he just trusted in the word of Christ. That's what I'm calling us to, that we're just trusting in him and his word for wherever you are in life. So I think that's the first point. It's simply he's praising God that God is trustworthy. So if you read in his word and he's making promises, then you can trust those. But there is a warning here because the temptation is that when the promises aren't answered in fullness, that we begin to waver on will God really provide for us. You see it in Zechariah. I mean, think about it for a minute. And by the way, Zechariah was a good man. Uh, If you look in chapter one, verse six, uh, Luke says he was a righteous man. He kept the law. He and his wife were godly. They were godly people. And yet you see him beginning to waver. Here an angel appears to him and says, you're gonna have a son. And he says, yeah, I don't see it. He doesn't believe an angel. I mean, he is wavering. It's a warning for us. The temptation from Genesis 3 on is you can't trust God. He's not good. You you better make alternative plans because he won't fulfill. If there's any delay in your prayer and his answer, I don't know that you can trust him. That's the temptation. And Zacharias, in his 80s, he's a priest and he's a godly man. So even those of us in the faith for a long time, we still have to fight for faith. I mean, one author said it this way, the reason Christianity is so hard, it's so daily. I mean, every day we get up and we we remember, no, I have to walk by faith. I have to trust God. Whatever new trouble confronts you, is God sufficient? Every day we have to do that. And you see the warning here that even those in the faith a long time, we still fight for faith. Uh, But not only that, there's another warning here. The warning is, some of us say, well, you know what, Tom? I struggle with faith. If I could just see it, then I'll believe it. If God just shows it to me, then we're good. Is that true? He saw an angel, didn't believe it. He saw an angel and didn't believe it. Uh, But that's not just the only example. How about the Pharisees? When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it says they left plotting to kill him. Really? Even worse, you have the very disciples of Jesus, the bigger, broad group of disciples, who see Jesus raised from the dead, and in Matthew 28, at the end of the chapter, it says, but some doubted, even after they saw him. So seeing is not believing. Faith, faith is believing without seeing. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what Jesus said to Thomas? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my finger in his side. And yet Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's the call of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So so just heed the warning. But but take the encouragement. Zechariah was restored. Even in his disbelief, God moved and restored him. And he is filled with the Spirit and he gives. So, so be encouraged by Zechariah. Zechariah came around, is what he did. And I wonder what made it happen. Could it have been the silence? Could it have been made deaf and dumb? Could it have been made that he had to start thinking about life? I, I just wonder what role not being able to speak or possibly even hear for 10 months would cause me to think about life. 
I think it would cause me to think about life differently. I mean, that happens to us when we get a word that we're sick, we're terminally sick, we begin thinking, or we may, we, we may lose a job, or we may face some other crises, we begin to all of a sudden, whoa, you know, we unhook from social platforms, we begin to think a bit more, we become more contemplative, and we begin to think through life a little differently. I wonder if that's the case for him. I wonder how we would be served if we backed away from the wiredness of our lives so that we enter a period, you know, the early Christians would practice silence and solitude all the time. They would have days where they would fast from words or fast from hearing, and they would try to think on these things of God. I wonder if that would serve us in any way. So that's the first thing, promise that he's faithful. Secondly, He's praising God that salvation is purposed. Look with me at uh, 74 and 75. So that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So let me remind you of the context. What you have here is you have simply that Zechariah is praising God. He sent a son. The son is going to save us. And the purpose of him saving us is so that we would serve him. In other words, we're not being saved to just go to heaven and float around up there with God. We're not being saved just so that we don't have to go to a dark, hot place. We're we're being saved to serve God. In other words, we're being changed to serve God. Now, Now, we're thinking, does that mean I'm a servant? Does that mean I'm like a household servant or I'm a butler or something like that? No, remember, in the Old Testament, to serve and to worship are almost used interchangeably. So when he says that he has, he has saved us, that we could serve him, what God is doing is he's changing us as people. He's, he's giving new life to us that we may worship him without fear. If you knew God in the midst of all of your sin, you would fear him desperately. But he's changing us. He's giving us new life. He's giving us new birth. See, see, this is the nature of what Christ does. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man came from dust. The second man came from heaven to give life. That's why Jesus called the second Adam. He came to save us, which means he came to make us new, to make us part of a new community, a household of faith, which all these members have just joined. So, so, so you often see this idea of recreation, or you see this idea of creation in many nativity scenes. You know, when, when you talk about the coming of Jesus, it's often pictured with nativity scenes. In fact, there was a friend's house that had their tree uh, decorated with scenes from creation. Why would they put creation in Christmas? Well, because Christ's coming is forming a new creation. We're a new people. We can now serve him without fear. Do you see what's happening? Jesus has come not just to make life better, but to make us different, to make us new, that we're made into his image so that we can serve him. You see the same thing in Revelation chapter five when he says that only Christ is worthy to open the scrolls to break the seals because with his blood he purchased men and women uh, for God to make them a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Do you see what he's saying? That coming to faith in Christ gives us a new identity. 
It, it, doesn't, it doesn't just make us better, it changes us that we're now children of God who want to serve him. And when I talk about serving God, what I'm talking about, friends, is, is not like going and delivering food at Thanksgiving, although that's a wonderful thing to do. To serve God means you live for God. All of your life is before God. So, so in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, they were to work and keep the garden. And all of their progeny were to work and keep the garden. To work and keep is synonymous with serve and worship. And so now we have been made new. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we are made new so that now you see your marriage is a place of worship. How I respond to Carol in conflict. That is an act of worship, or should be, or it should be seen in that view. How I raise my children, how I spend my money, how I use my time, the willingness I have to sacrifice for people that can never repay me. All of my life, because now I'm different. Notice he saved us so that we would serve him without fear and gladness. Has your Christianity changed the intention of your life? Has your Christianity changed the values that you have? What's important to you? Has your Christianity changed the willingness that you have to sacrifice for others for their good? Has it changed your identity? Do you still see yourself by the body type that you have? Do you still see yourself by what you've accomplished or what you've done or what you hope to do? Or do you see yourself now? No, I'm made in the image of God. I've been recreated and now I live for God. So that's what he's doing. He's saving us to being a people for God. And notice what he says, all our days, all our days. Not just these days, and not just in heaven, but all of our days, these days and those days. So he's called us to be different. So, so that's why Zachariah's praising God, because someone is coming who will finally change me. Our efforts at self-reformation, they're over. We now look to God. God, you've got to change me. You've got to take out my heart, of, my heart of stone and the hardness of my soul, and you have to put in a heart of flesh. You have to make me different. God, I can't change myself. A leopard can't change its spots. So, so that's why he's thanking God. This Messiah will change us. And then the third thing he praises God for is that this salvation that is coming is to be proclaimed to the nations. And the reason I say, it's like, why is he going in a direction of mission here? Well, look with me at 76, because Zechariah, the father, now turns to speak to his son. He says, where am I? He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is, this is a beautiful gospel declaration. Let's just walk through it with me for just a moment. Notice what Zachariah's doing. He's thanking God. He says, you child, you are destined to be a prophet of this Messiah. And you are going to speak to the excellencies. Notice, John wasn't a prophet saying that Rome was going to be thrown off. The yoke of Rome. There wasn't nationalistic. There isn't militaristic deliverance here. You, you hear what he's saying. That may come ultimately. But you hear what he's saying when he says, you will prepare his ways 
and you will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The whole message of the gospel, I should say the message of Christmas, is the declaration to you, just as John was going to declare it, I'm declaring this to you, that Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming to deliver us from our sins, the shame, the guilt. All of us, think back with me for just a minute. I mean, sin is this kind of abstract term, but let's just roll back and in how we treat people, how we think about life, how we've lived apart from God. I mean, you don't have to be very long to kind of begin to develop a, a box of regret. Maybe some of us have a box of just great shame. Maybe some of us have a, have a box of just, if anybody knew this, I would be absolutely humiliated. I mean, all of us have the, and he's come to wash us clean of these sins so that we can go before God without fear. I would be in fear of taking my sin to God unless there was one who could advocate for me and who could be one who would cleanse me. That's the message. Give them the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. This is why when the angel appeared to to Joseph in Matthew chapter one, he says, you will give him the name Jesus because he will come and save his people from their sins. He didn't come to do an educational reform. He didn't come to do a political reform. He came to give us new life. And, and, and notice this gift of forgiveness. You think, well, how do I get that? I mean, you don't have to be very old to begin to think, how do I get this, for, how do I get this relationship? Well, I gotta try harder maybe. Or, or maybe I gotta promise God I'll go into ministry. No, notice what it says in the text. He says, you're gonna prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. Uh, friends, th- there is so much weight in that. The salvation that Jesus Christ has come to bring is rooted not in what you can be, not in what you have potential to do, not in what you promise God you'll do. It's rooted because of his tender mercy. He doesn't even say mercy. He says tender mercy. I mean, how many of us think of God as tender? Just that word. I mean, don't we think of him? I mean, intuitively, our minds go to he's a taskmaster, he's a lawgiver, he's keeping track of all of our faults, or maybe he's a distant deity. Maybe he doesn't even know my name. And yet here we're told, no, it's his tender mercy which moves him. This is why there's no boasting in the Christian life, what you know about God and how you've come to love him. Friends, tender mercy, it's all it is. Mercy is something that you cannot conjure. It's the one thing that's not repayment. Mercy isn't repayment. I mean, mercy is just given unilaterally. And notice how he proves his mercy to us. Look with me just at that second. He says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Who is the sunrise? Or the older translations, the day spring. The sunrise shall visit us. Remember the same God visiting us in verse 68? Now the sunrise visiting, it's the same person. It's the Messiah, Jesus coming. The sunrise shall visit us from high. Let me just give you a quick little, a little help in understanding the sunrise. If you go back, don't, but if you were to go back to Malachi chapter 4, 2, here's what you'd read. 
Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. So a day of judgment is coming that will be just decimating. But you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So before this terrible day, a sun, a sunrise is going to appear. But what happens before? Well, just a couple verses later in Malachi chapter 4, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So God is saying, hey, listen, before that final day comes, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. Who's Elijah? Elijah had already died. <clears throat> Who's Elijah? Well, that's what they all wanted to know. <clears throat> My voice is changing, sorry. Matthew 11 tells us, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is the Elijah of Malachi 4. I'm the one bringing the awesome day of the Lord. I'm the one coming. I'm God visiting you. I'm bringing salvation. I'm bringing forgiveness of sins. It's by the tender mercy of my Father. I'm bringing light to those in darkness and I'm bringing life to those in the shadow of death. Do you hear what's happening? It leads us to peace. If you want peace with God, it's through Jesus bringing the light of the gospel, salvation through faith. That is how our feet are led or guided to peace with God where we don't need to fear. Even death itself holds no fear for those who are now forgiven by God, loved by God, adopted by God, by trusting in this one. Now listen, the first century listeners here, they weren't looking for spiritual redemption. They're like many of us. They want political reform. They want social reform. They want educational reform. And this is part of the reason why I think secular or Christian or Christmas is so secularized right now. We don't think we need one to come save us from sins. We're not ready to dispense with religion. We need religion. Religion's good. It's good. It makes good people better. It gives meaning to life. A lot of people think religion, it's just good for society. It's good for our schools. Christ is not an additive to life. He is absolutely essential to life. That's what he means when he says, light comes into darkness. Life comes into the shadow of death. Do you know the darkness and the shadow of death? Uh, that's a, a quote from Isaiah in chapter nine, verses two. Uh, but it's really a metaphor for our life. We're in darkness. I, I mean, every one of us, before coming to faith in Christ, you're in a moral, spiritual darkness. I mean, how many people do you know in your family outside the Christian faith, they're living life as if God doesn't even exist, and yet there he is giving them breath. They're dark. They're confused. They don't understand. I was that way for 20-plus years of my life. I was just living in darkness. Whatever was right at the time that I wanted it to be right, it was right. It, it, it was absolutely moral chaos. I was in darkness. I didn't understand. That, that's all of us. No person is born in the light. But not only are we in darkness, he says we're in the shadow of death. 
Now, now we think the shadow of death. You know, we think of Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. We think that you enter the shadow of death when you get over 60. Or we think you enter the shadow of death when you get the call and you got cancer and you're going to die. That's not the shadow of death. You can be 15, you're in the shadow of death. Everybody's in the shadow of death. Every single person in this room, you're in the shadow of death. The shadow of death is that we live in this flesh and blood that is perishing as we speak. That's what he means by he's bringing light and life to those in darkness and in the shadow of death. We are all dying. And yet he has come to bring light, to give knowledge of the gospel so that we might have life even though we're in the valley of the shadow of death. We have now a new life. We sang it in Hark the Herald. Death no more. Death no more for us. This is an incredible promise. You may be here, maybe you're looking at Christianity, maybe you're not even certain where you are with God. There is an invitation. Jesus himself in John 8, he invites people to come to him. He says in 8, verse 12, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the life of light, or excuse me, the light of life. Whoever follows me, and to follow Christ is by faith. It's to say, I will put the safety of my soul, even as my body perishes, I'll put the safety of my soul in your hands. I'll trust you. You alone will be the one that I look to to save. That's what, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is Jesus coming and establishing a kingdom of which he will be a king. That was the promise. And this kingdom, we're going to be servants, and these servants are going to enjoy peace with God. So that's for the non-Christian. But if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, think about John for a minute. John was tasked to declare this message before the first coming. But now we are to declare this truth to the nations before the second coming. I mean, Christmas time is no better time to be able to engage people in what does matter in life. Why are we celebrating Christ? Why are we singing about this Savior that's come from heaven? It's a wonderful time. Let's pray for boldness that we can actually speak to the things of God with our neighbors and our friends and our family. And think about all the things you would want to say. And yet here you have friends. They're in darkness. Again, it's a metaphor. They may be very intelligent people but they're in spiritual darkness. They're living in a shadow of death, which means they will not live forever. What do we tell them other than, but one has come? This is Zacharias. That's why he's praising God. God, you've been faithful. You kept your promises. God, you haven't just saved me to some celestial, I don't even know what it would be. No, you've called me to be a servant for all of my days. I'm gonna live my life for you. And then you, you have called me to proclaim this peace. What more important things do you have to share than this? So let's, let's just ask God right now. Take a moment, maybe just in silence, and ask God to make these things clearer to you. Or ask him to reveal himself to you. But let's, let's use these moments to be drawn closer to God, and then I'll pray for us.